Well, we have another treat here this morning as well. I see over here that Mitchell Keys is joining us this morning. Mitchell just waved his hand up. That wasn't a charismatic move of the Spirit, but to let you know uh, where he's at over here. Uh, Mitchell, it's good to have you here, brother. Uh, I didn't know that you were going to be here. I guess you're home for the holidays to be able to rest. Fantastic. Uh, I remember in 2013, and this is one of the reasons we do these missions interviews, is to let you know how you are participating in furthering the gospel uh, throughout the world. Your giving, your prayers is making a difference. So thank you for doing that. But I remember, uh, Mitchell, having... uh, lunch with your dad in 2013 when I first became pastor here at Providence. And, and Andrew asked me, uh, what is your vision for the church? And I said, well, I'd love to have a ministry presence of Providence in every inhabited continent in the world. And at that time, uh, we were getting ready to send the Kemp's to uh, South Africa. We had our works that was starting to go in Indonesia. Uh, and we also had Monica going back and forth to Ecuador. And we had church planners that were here in North America. And the one continent that we did not have anybody going to was Australia. And I remember your dad laughing in my face when I said we wanted to have a Providence presence in every continent. And there you are the one that went and went there and and is ministering on our behalf. So I am so grateful for you, brother. Uh, Let's pray before we uh, receive God's word. Lord, we just thank you so much for what we're seeing you do around the world. When, Lord, there are so many other things in this world that could cause us to despair, things, Lord, that would cause us to doubt we see some tangible means of the way that you are producing and sharing and getting the gospel, your glorious good news out. Your light is shining to the nations, and we are so grateful for that. We thank you, Lord, for Kevin and Darla and their visit here and the encouragement that they are to us. We also thank you, Lord, for our brother Mitchell. We pray, Lord, that his time here uh, would be a great rest to him before he goes back to work with the students in Australia. And Lord, we also pray that we as a church family, that we would truly meditate on the concept of Christ Jesus coming into the world to save sinners. That should affect us not only internally, but it should affect us externally as well. And so, Lord, allow that truth to inhabit our hearts. And we pray that as we receive your word, that you would be glorified in it. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I am told that when Providence first began, you were preaching through the book of Romans. And I remember the first few sermons I had when we first came to PBC were from Romans 11 and Romans chapter 12. And Steve Smart says that we never finished Romans, and he made me promise before he dies that at some point we will complete the book of Romans. And I can tell you, I love Paul's letter to the Roman church. And if you look at my personal Bible study, or my study Bible, I have no doubt that it has more notes that I've written in it than any other book of the Bible. However, I have yet to preach through it because it intimidates me, because I seem to discover fresh new insights each time I study it. I kind of feel like I don't feel qualified to preach it yet because I just haven't had enough theology or haven't lived enough life yet to mine all the riches to bring it forth to you. Well, fortunately for you and for me, I don't have to mine all of its riches this morning. We are just going to focus on one single topic. Last week, we began a new theme about Abraham and Genesis as they relate to the incarnation. And I want to continue that theme both today and on Christmas Eve. 
When we looked at Isaiah chapter 9 last week, we saw that through Abraham's offspring, descending through Isaac, Jacob, Judah, eventually King David and his progeny, ten generations removed, all the way to King Ahaz, the people of Israel, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, were looking ahead to a son to be born, a child who would complete the promise to Abraham that through his particular offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. The northern kingdom at that time was about to be expelled from God's presence. They would be in great darkness apart from the Lord until his son appeared. And this child would assume the throne of David and righteously rule and reign over all people. He would restore the relationship between God and the nations. And in our study, we saw that this child is King Jesus, the true Emmanuel, God with us, the one who will plunder the spoil quickly because he is the conqueror, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace who shall reign forever and ever. So what we're looking for today is how a Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, came to understand the promise of Abraham and what Abraham was expecting originally and how that manifested itself in the incarnation. And if you haven't guessed it by now, we want to know what did the apostle Paul think of Abraham's promise and what benefit is Abraham to someone who is not a blood descendant of him? After all, Abraham is the founder of the nation. And if Christ is the recipient of the promise, then how do the nations come under his rule in reconciliation rather than just subjugation? So if you're not turned there yet, please turn back to Romans chapter 4. I want us to look at what Paul says, uh, says about this under three headings. The means by which the nations obtain the promise, what the promise entitles them to, and the basis by which the nations obtain it. And another way we might frame this is when it comes to the promise, we could ask how, what, and why. How does one get it? What are the benefits of the promise? And why does one get it? Well, we keep reiterating over and over again, but the simple answer of how one receives this promise is by faith. For some reason, the mind of mankind leads us to believe that we must earn our right to stand before God, that, that we must be entitled to stand before Him on our own merit. And this is a struggle for us. God is holy, and He cannot allow sinful rebellion in His presence. And we don't like to think that we are rebels. We all want to think that we can stand before the Lord God Almighty, who is perfect and holy. We want to feel like we deserve to be there but we cannot. We have this problem of sin in our lives that affects every part of our faculties. I had someone ask me recently, what did we mean by the doctrine of total depravity? Does that mean that every single thing we do is evil? No, but it does mean that every part of us has been contaminated by sin. Let me give you an illustration. When Lisa and I were newlyweds, we moved into a rental house where we were living in North Carolina. The house was pretty odd to begin with, and the owner would do whatever he could to save money rather than make any legitimate repairs. I kid you not, literally in the back of the house where my office was, I could place a marble on one end of the room, and it would roll to the same corner every time. That's how rickety our house was. 
So one day, we began to notice an oil smell. At first, it wasn't that unusual as we had oil heating in the house, but over time, the smell became more and more pronounced. And the owner just kept telling us over and over, well, it's just some spilt oil when they filled the tank. Finally, we made him come out and showed him how this oil smell had permeated the entire house. Even our clothes smelled like oil. And after a little investigation, he discovered that the in-ground oil tank had been leaking for years. You could not tell it from looking at it from the outside. We, we had a beautiful little yard. We had beautiful roses blooming outside. We had nice grass covering the yard. But they had to come and dig out the soil for about six feet deep underneath the foundation of our house because it had been contaminated by this oil and it was a health risk. While we were living it, that's what they were doing. I remember thinking you could step off my front porch and descend six feet under and just allow them to pour dirt on you and be buried there at that time. Thankfully, the Lord called us to Tennessee within the year, but a woman bought the house and she called me one day to ask me if I, what I knew about the leak that was there. And the reason that she had called me was because the entire property was being condemned. It turned out that the oil was slowly being leaking for years, had made it all the way down to a nearby lake and was poisoning the wildlife there. And the authorities had traced it back to our old rental house. That is what sin does. It slowly contaminates ourselves and everything around us. It ruins us. It reaches every area of our lives, our bodies, our souls, our spirits. And it manifests itself in our selfishness, in our sex lives, our fears, the words we think, and our thought processes. All of our faculties have been contaminated by our sin. And we think the way to overcome our sin is simply to replace the outward bad choices that we make with good choices that will somehow make up for them. When the problem is internal as well as external. The Jews believed they could be reconciled to God by the law, seeking to live in purity and then making atonement for sin by the ritualistic blood sacrifices of animals. But in the first 12 verses of chapter 4, Paul begins to show that won't work. He points out that Abraham was never under the law. He preceded the lawgiver Moses by 500 years. How did Abraham gain access to the promise of God that he would be a blessing to all the nations and that God would be his God? What outward obedience did he have to do? Well, here's how. He simply believed God and began to trust that the Lord would do all that he told him would be true. That's it. By faith. Now, some Jews said, well, what about circumcision? Didn't God order Abraham to be circumcised? Wasn't that a type of law? Paul points out in the first 12 verses that Abraham believed first, and then he was circumcised. The circumcision was merely a sign that he trusted in God's promises to him. So that covers Abraham. But what about his descendants? Surely they have to be under the law. And what about us who are not of the bloodline of Abraham? We know we are contaminated by sin. We might not have ever heard that there was a written law that could perhaps help us. How could we ever make up for all the sins that we have committed? Think about it, folks. Here you are living in the 21st century, and then you read the law of Moses that God requires a blood sacrifice to atone for every sin. 
Not just one sacrifice, but one for every time you sin. How do you make up for that now? How many of you people own goats and cows in their backyards that would be readily available for such an act? Would those be enough to cover for every sin you've committed? It would be insurmountable. My bank account could not handle the smallest sacrifices I would need to make to make restitution before God. But this is Paul's point. Making restitution to God has never been about keeping the law. The law teaches us about God's holiness and his strict demands. And our obedience to his commands are outward ways to demonstrate that the Lord's ways are right. It is good that we do not lie. It is good that we do not steal or murder or commit adultery. It's good that we only serve the one true God and not idols of the world. We agree with God's holiness when we seek to act in righteousness, but it cannot atone for our countless sins. So this is why Paul writes to the Romans church, which would have been made up of former Jews and former pagans. Now let's pick up Paul, the former Jew of Jews, as he makes his point in verse 13 here. For the promise to Abraham, and not just old Abe here, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. Now look at that language heir of the world. Paul believed that the promise to Abraham and his offspring would entitle them to the whole world at some point. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So not a righteousness that comes by holy living, but one obtained by faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heir. For if it was the adherents of the law to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it's written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's the power that Abraham believed in. And I just want to point out that Paul believed that creation was ex nihilo. It was out of nothing, that God alone is the life giver. Take that, you theistic evolutionist, all right? Verse 18, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, not just Israel, but all of them. And as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. That's a direct quote from Genesis 15, 6. And here's the glorious news for us this morning. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses. Whose trespasses? Ours. And raised for our justification. For whose justification? Ours. 
So if we want to be included in the same promise of Abraham, that we would inherit the forthcoming world that will be imperishable and incorruptible, and God would be our God, and we would be his people, we must believe by faith that Jesus acquired this standing before God for us. That we don't do anything at all but believe that Jesus alone took care of our trespasses. That's atonement and justifies us. That's giving us right standing before the Lord. So what exactly are all the benefits to this? Well, Paul introduces us to those in chapter 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, again, Paul reiterates the how, justification by faith and what Jesus has done, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's benefit number one, peace with God. In our study of, of Isaiah 9 last week, we saw this is one of the titles of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we are completely reconciled to God. God is no longer angry at us. He loves us and has adopted us as his children. This means when I lay down at night, I can know that the bad stuff that is happening around the world or directly to me is not because God is mad at me. I can know that if I ever experience his chastening hand of discipline, like when he wants to pluck an idol out of my hand that I keep wanting to cling to, and it hurts because I love it so much, I can know that he is not doing this out of anger, but out of love, and that he wants the best for me. I can rest at peace because Christ has atoned for every sin. Verse 2. Through him we also have, and here's benefit number two, obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. If there was ever a thought of a benefit, here is one that you should meditate on and you should memorize. Access into the grace of God. That should be at the top of your list. You have complete, uninhibited access to the grace of God for all time. Some of my first years of elementary school were at a private Presbyterian school that was always trying to find ways to make money. Anybody can relate? We've got a few. So they did these student sale fundraisers, and they would have this professional fundraising group come in, and they would pass out catalogs of Christmas cards and Christmas wrapping paper and chocolate and cookie tins. And this fundraising group would call a, a school-wide assembly, and they'd get us all excited. And there were all these tiers of rewards that we could get if we sold enough items, kind of like Amway for kids. And, and the big daddy reward of all of them was a golden ticket to a party for all the top salespeople. Now, we didn't know what all would be involved at the party, but they hyped it up pretty good, and they told us that they would have pizza from Pizza Hut. Now, you youngins, you don't remember this, but when we were growing up in the 70s, that was a big deal. We had two options for pizza, frozen Totino's or Pizza Hut. That was it. Pizza Hut literally was considered a luxury, Amen. Okay, I'm hearing it. Okay, of course, my parents, they, they bought a couple of items for me to, to make that first tier. I think I got a mini Frisbee, which was more like a coaster than it was a Frisbee. But one of my classmates, Roger, he got out there and he sold and he made it all the way to the top tier. 
And I remember another pep rally where they gave him and a few others a golden ticket to the big party that day in front of all of us. And of course, this party was during school hours. So Roger got out of class to attend it. And I remember passing by the door of the room while the party was going on. I think I had a pass to go to the bathroom or something. And as I got closer, I could hear Fleetwood Mac just blasting from the room. And the door was open, and I could see balloons and streamers. And there I caught Roger's eye. He was grinning at me as he was lifting a slice of pepperoni pizza up to his mouth. How I wanted access into that party. But I didn't have a golden ticket. I didn't earn one. The grand prize winner actually went home with a bike that day. Leave it to the Presbyterians to teach me about works righteousness. But this is what faith in Christ does. It gives you the golden ticket to God's grace without earning it. Through Christ, you get all of God's grace. Every sin I commit, guess what I get? More grace. It's like an Oprah Christmas episode. You get grace, and you get grace, and you get grace. And I'll confess, I've, I've had these pity parties where I've been mad at God because I was like a petulant child thinking he didn't give me what I wanted in a particular moment. And then my spirit is convicted, and I realize I'm not entitled to anything. And I go to the Lord, and I say, I'm sorry. And you know what I find? More grace. More grace every time. There's not been a time yet that I've come before him and I didn't find grace. So we have peace, grace, and the third benefit is hope in the midst of our sufferings in this world. Verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Now, I want to stop right there. I just mentioned a minute ago how we can know that God is for me and not against me when things are not going the way that I think they should. So here Paul reminds us that we will have suffering in this world. It is assured in a sin-contaminated world. People abuse you. They take advantage of you. You get sick, and death comes to us all. All of those are effects of the fall. But Paul says, as we suffer through this, we endure. And that endurance is producing a Christ-like character in us where our faith is becoming stronger. Just like Abraham, and we've talked about this in this Greek word for hope before. It's the Greek word elpis. It's not wishful thinking kind of hope, but a full expectation that one will receive what is promised. Kind of like one year, my mom asked me, and I told my parents what I wanted for Christmas. She asked me what I wanted, and I said, I would like a skateboard. And that Christmas morning, guess what I got? A skateboard. I had hope that my parents could deliver on their promise. If not, I probably would have said something like, nothing, mom, just your love and affection is enough. Which would have been a miracle in of itself for her. This hope that God is producing in us keeps us from despairing in the worst of situations. Doesn't mean we won't feel it from time to time, but it always keeps us turning back to God. And why is in verse 2, Paul wrote, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's what we will see. We become certain of it. 
And the fourth benefit is the gift of the Holy Spirit in us. The end of verse 5, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Why do we keep enduring the suffering? Because we have the Holy Spirit constantly pointing us to the love of God. The Spirit keeps pouring God's love into us. I've often had those pity parties that I mentioned earlier, thought of the Lord continuing to love me. And I am drawn to the fact that he who did not withhold his own son, how would he not also give me all things? And I'm more certain of it than ever before, that he loves me. I know he loves me. I see his grace and and his mercy every single time and time again. And like old Abraham, I keep getting better at trusting my God each and every day. And this is a good point to make this transition. I haven't mentioned Advent yet, of the incarnate God coming into the world. But here it is in verse 6. The fruit of Abraham's promise. And it's the basis of our faith and why we receive the benefits. The how was through faith. The what were these four glorious benefits of our relationship to God. And now here is the why we receive them. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Look at those words. At the right time. God had a perfect plan from the foundation of the world. He had his perfect timing in that time. And that 2,000 years ago, Jesus entered into the world. He was born as a baby, and he suffered all the same indignities in the world that we do, yet was without sin. He loved living a perfect life of obedience to the Father. He not only did the will of his Father, he loved to do the will of his Father. And he told us why. To seek and to save the lost. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is not something that we can earn. It's not even something that we can meet him halfway on. While we were still sinners, Jesus came to achieve our salvation when we could not. You don't participate in your salvation at all. Jesus did that when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. All you have to do is believe in it. So Paul's point here and how we should live in light of Jesus' first advent, verse 9, since therefore we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You and your God are united together because of what Jesus has done. What are you to the God of the universe? Are you still his enemy? If not, what reconciled you to him? If it was his son, Jesus, who obtained your right standing before the Lord, what does that mean that you are to him now? Certainly not his enemy, but his child. He loves you as he loves his own dear son. Just as he loved Abraham when he didn't deserve it. He loves you 
not based upon your behavior, but based upon your faith in his son's behavior. So this morning, we've answered three fundamental questions of the Judeo-Christian faith. How does one receive the promise first made to Abraham? How is one an offspring of Abraham? Through the law? No, through faith in Christ. And what does that promise entitle you to? Peace with God, access to His grace, hope in the midst of suffering, and the Holy Spirit constantly reminding you of the love of God. And why can you expect to be able to receive this precious promise? Because Jesus accomplished everything you need to gain it. There's nothing that you have to do. You just believe that he did it. And the proof that you believe will be your desire to submit to him and to live for him. The Spirit will ensure that in your heart. So when you come to this Jesus, do you find someone who is judgmental? Someone who would cast you out? No, you find one who lived in flesh and blood. One who understood how powerful were our temptations. One who destroys the power of sin and death and the devil. And this Jesus wants you to come to him by faith, whether this is your first time or your 777th time. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we think, Lord, of how much sin has contaminated us, how much it has spread to every faculty of our beings, and it it's comes and emanates from our hearts, and then it works its way out into our extremities, and it even is given and shared with other people, Lord. Lord, we are just cover our hands over our mouth and say, how can, how can we ever, ever, ever be right before you when you are so holy? And the answer clearly is Christmas. The answer is Advent. That you sent your son into the world to become flesh and blood. And that through that, he lived a perfect life of obedience. He loved to do your will. He did it perfectly. And yet he put himself up on the cross to be the sacrifice, the propitiation, to pay the sin debt that we owed you And yet, by faith in exchange, he gives us his right standing before you. And through Jesus, we have these beautiful benefits of knowing that you are our God and we are your people, that we have peace with you, that we have access to our grace, that we have hope, Lord, that can help us endure, and we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, producing a love for you more and more every day when we go through the trials of this world. That's helping us to reach that full fruition of when you come to redeem the world in its entirety. Oh, thank you for this glorious gift. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for securing it for us. Lord, I pray that every person in this room, people who may be listening on the internet right now, I pray, Lord, that you would open their hearts, help them to see that this can only come by faith in Jesus that their faith would rest in him alone. And that, Lord, even if they started to stray a little bit and they're seeking to some other way to try to atone for their sins, that they would come back to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that you would remind them, no, no, my son has already done enough. It is sufficient. It will cover you. It will take care of you, even now in this day. So that we 
who come to you by faith, Lord, would be able to glorify you and give you the praise all the more on what you've done on our behalf. We pray this all in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Brother Philip, if you would come.